Hey folks, thanks for checking out the Wait What If podcast. I am your host, Kevin Sullivan, sitting on a back porch in the middle of a Saturday afternoon in June in North Carolina. It is hot. It is very hot out here. And I'm only out here because it's a Saturday afternoon and typically I record at night. I can record anywhere because it's nice and quiet. But in my neighborhood, there are children everywhere, especially in my house. So I've sought refuge in the backyard. Tonight, we have a really cool guest, one of my favorite guests. It is James Barrett, author of Our Final Invention, and recently featured on the new documentary, Do You Trust This Computer? If you haven't seen that movie, check it out. It's all about AI and where it's going. I've been on an AI kick. Well, I was on an AI kick, I guess, uh, for the last couple years, ever since reading James Barrett's book. I had not given AI too much thought beyond Siri and maybe what I saw on TV. Uh, only because I never thought it would be a reality. But it is becoming a reality every single day of our lives. It's being implemented in places we never even considered. James is a leading thinker on AI. And if you haven't read his book, I highly suggest checking it out. You're listening to the Wait What If podcast. <laughs> reporting is is easy to fake and uh it's not not fake but there's a company called narrative science that does a lot of uh creates a lot of sports articles from uh, under under covered teams teams that just don't get any other would, would not get an article in the paper okay Narrative science, science does thousands of, of uh, sports articles. I compare, in my book, Our Final Invention, I compare two paragraphs written about the same game by AI, one by that's right, that's a, right. A, human, a human, and uh, they're pretty hard to tell apart. Yeah. yeah. But in terms of the game itself, I, you know, I don't, I don't see when that's going to, when that's going to, when it's going to, I'm not sure when it's going to be more interesting to watch a, a robot play a game than it will be to watch a human play a game. Right. Another way to look at it is, you know, we use a AI as a big part of graphics modeling now and they're and they're kind of doing away with actors. Yeah. And uh and they can they can scan actors and uh that's you know it's 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 AI that fills in those gaps between uh different different images of the actors. That's right. I uh Star Wars. Star Wars had a, a fellow that died, I don't know, fifteen years ago. And, uh, oh, right. yeah. and they brought him back. <laughs> and then even, um, I can't remember her name, but Princess Leah died. And she had put in her, her will that she didn't want to be used after her death. You know? Oh, really? And yeah. did, did, they, did they use her? I don't believe so. I think they were, you know, they're done with her. Hmm. Well, it, you know, it, that's, that's, that's a good question when it comes to social media. Do we have a right to die? Yeah. Do we have a right to retire our accounts? So if you look at Mr. Barrett's work, it's a lot of filmmaking and historical documentaries. What is a documentary filmmaker doing focusing most of his time on AI? How did this even get on his radar? As a, I, I, want, I made a film about AI in around the year 2000, and I interviewed Ray Kurzweil and Rodney Brooks, and both of those guys were very positive about the future to come and we'll share the planet with smarter than human machines. Ray Kurzweil's uh, uh, 
a, a super inventor. He works for Google now. He's head of their big brain project. Rodney Brooks is the premier roboticist of our time.、Mm-hmm. They were they were very optimistic. But I talked to I talked to Arthur C. Clarke. In、uh, I went to Sri Lanka and it was really、uh, a great joy to spend a day with him. And he was saying, well, not so much. You know, intelligence will win out in whatever form. And so、uh, it got me thinking about the downside of AI. And I made a film in, in 2000. But then when I wanted to make a film about AI risk,、uh, I didn't think a film was appropriate. I thought a, a, a book would be would be better. In a documentary film of one hour, you get about five thousand words. Okay. In a book, you can get like mine. You get, I think it's it was ended up being almost a hundred thousand words or over three hundred pages. Yeah. So it's a subject that you really it's hard to treat it in a documentary. And what 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 filmmakers do in in that sort of commercial documentary world is they take complex subjects and make them simple to understand. And so writing a book about AI was not really a big stretch、uh, from from the stuff I normally do.、Uh, it was just a matter of interviewing a lot of people, visiting a lot of people. Doing a lot of background reading,、uh, <laughs> having a lot of people to bounce my ideas off of, and、um, yeah, so it was really it was it was like filmmaking but with a much smaller crew. Throughout history, what role does science fiction play in predicting the future? All we have to do is look at our past to see where science fiction has helped mold the futures that we live in. Look no further than H.G. Wells with space travel, or to a lesser extent, 2001: A Space Odyssey with HAL compared to Siri. Are times like the singularity science fiction, or will it come to fruition? There is a phrase,、um, you know, we need to be careful about science fiction. Werner Vinge is extremely important to this conversation. Werner Vinge is a science fiction writer and mathematician, and he came up with the whole term, the singularity. And his was very different from Ray Kurzweil's. For him, the singularity, for for the original, he originally quoted it in the '90s, Werner Vinge,、uh, to say that we can't really understand what will happen. Uh, we we science fiction writers are facing a crisis because we don't know what will happen when we share the planet with smarter than human machines. So we can't really write about it. And the singularity, the singularity, the the,、um, the cosmological meaning is, it's the、uh, event horizon, the black hole. It's the point at which、uh, light can't escape. The point at which once you go past that, light can't escape. You can't really know what's in there. And so he was using it as this as this term of.、Uh, Of unknowability, and Kurzweil rebranded it as being this period, this utopian period where、uh, nano, info, bio, and cogno technologies all come together to solve all our problems,、right. including, including mortality. And I always had trouble with that word because when I first heard it, it's it's sort of ambiguous because I I want to when I hear the singularity, I picture in my head the Big Bang, you know, the Bing yeah, the moment、yeah. it all comes together. But、yeah. it, it, it's not very descriptive, so it's like, well, what, what exactly is it, and and will it happen? You know, will we have that big bang, or is it going to be more of a?、Um, I think it's a. I think it's a. I think it's kind of nonsense. I think it's kind of a marketing thing. Yeah.、Um, it, the technological singularity, the definition that Kurzweil's come up with, is the point at which we ha- we share the planet with smarter than human machines, and at that point, all these. All these di- different technologies come together, 
and then they solve all our problems. But uh, it's not clear to a lot of people that when we reach that point of sharing the planet with machines that are thousands or millions of times more intelligent than we are, that, that that will be the end of our problems. A lot of us think it might be the beginning of our problems. Next, James discusses how the concept of artificial intelligence are gradually becoming part of the zeitgeist of the 21st century. AI is slowly moving from fictional boogeyman to reality in many aspects of life. You know, it's interesting. Um, when when I.J. Good came up with the idea of the intelligence explosion, and that's basically the idea that if we create smarter than human machines, they'll be better than, than us at everything, including creating smart machines. And then the pace of intelligence will will exceed beyond our ability to control it. When he came up with that idea, he was he was evaluating a machine called a perceptron, which was was a, a, a one one layer neural net. Um, now, what's been interesting is that now, sixty years later, almost, where neural nets and uh, deep learning, which are deep neural nets, and 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 add. Uh, deep adversarial learning, which is this whole new twist on neural nets, have become this really powerful uh, engine in AI innovation. So, if I could have anticipated, I didn't. I I, I I I talk about neural nets in a couple of places in the book as black box systems, which they are. Mm-hmm. Meaning, meaning you can adjust the inputs and you you can see what the outputs are, but you don't know what's going on inside. And I thought, and I said at the time, or I wrote at the time, that these, that makes that kind of disqualifies them for for security sensitive applications. Um, but I didn't realize that that uh, neural nets would be quite so great. Um, there's a, there was a confluence a few years ago of better processors, you know, using G, GPUs, not CPUs, to to do AI. Uh, the the availability of big data because of all the sensors and the cheapness of, of processors, access to big data, and then techniques like neural nets. Those three things came together to create this revolution we're in right now. Hmm. I didn't I didn't anticipate that, and and I don't think anybody did. And now it's really really exciting. Um, it may not take us all the way to to you know human level intelligence in a machine. But it's doing some pretty amazing things with medicine, with, with science, with, with, uh, with pharmacological research. So our final invention came out back in 2013, five years ago. Not long ago in the general terms of things, but in the digital age, that is a long time. Over the past five years, I asked James if anything concerning AI has surprised him. I think people are getting, I mean, there's one sort of basic fact, and that's that we scientists aren't going to stop developing artificial intelligence. And even though we may be decades or, or up to you know a century away from creating human-level intelligence as smart as a machine. I mean, a machine intelligence as smart as a human. Right. We're eventually going to get there, and that's pretty inescapable. And if we get there, then we get to the point where, uh, 
machines are making um, intelligent machines, and and they're setting the pace of intelligence growth, and we'll be sharing the planet with with uh, machines that are millions of times smarter than we are. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of that's when people understand that that that's really kind of the inescapable truth. Then they start becoming very interested in the question of can we coexist with these machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and it becomes, and then then they re, then they re, realize why people like me and and uh, you know Stuart Stuart Russell and Elon Musk and Bill Gates and uh, and and Stephen like Stephen Hawking say this is the most important conversation of our time. I think people are getting on because you know Elon Musk about once a month chirps up and says we're all you know we're all going to die. And it's, <laughs> and then what's, what's good about it though, is that, that, that makes journalists go out and ask questions and bring this material to the, to the public. Right. Um, so I do think I'm very happy to say, you know, I, I don't think I was a, a pioneer. I think I was part of the zeitgeist because a lot of people were getting it at exactly the sort of same time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and people like, uh, uh, there's a great AI thinker named Elias Yudkowsky who started a group called the Singularity Institute back around 2000, 2001. He was thinking about this. He's been thinking about this since 2000. And um, there's another guy who's, who's at Oxford. Uh, his name always is very important to this conversation, but he's also been thinking about it since around 2000. So, you know, those of us who came to it around, you know, in the, in the later 2000s, 2008, 2009, were the latecomers because a lot of good thinking had been done already. There's another guy named Steve Almahundro, who I write, write a lot of, about in my book, and mm-hmm. uh, he's been thinking about it for a long time. So it's great, it's great that it's finally getting uh, some press. It's not all hysterical. A lot of it's hysterical. Um, but I think it's a good thing. It's, there, there's been a couple of hearings on Capitol Hill. I think, like, like a lot of others do, that ultimately will need uh, regulation over AI. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy about where it's going. I wish it were going there faster because I think it's, it's developing exponentially, but, but our insights about how to develop it safely are not developing exponentially. So looking back at AI being the boogeyman for so many years, just look at Hal from 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Terminator, or my favorite Ava from Ex Machina. Folks have become accustomed to dismissing true AI as nothing more than a fictional character which will never come to fruition. I, I think we've been, as I, as I wrote in Our Final Invention, I think we've been inoculated by movies. So we don't we don't worry about it. In, in the movies, we always come out ahead. There's there's this you know hard bitten band of you know professionals that have just enough guts to to defeat the and, and smarts to defeat the uh, AI monster. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, we shouldn't base base our defense tactics on 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 movies. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a phrase that goes with that call that says uh, don't. Um, generalize from fictional evidence and that means don't develop strategies based on movies and books you've you've, you've seen and read mm-hmm. uh it's not it's not you know and the other thing is bill joy said uh years ago he wrote a really influential essay called um why the future doesn't need us 
And he said in that essay somewhere, uh, just because you saw it in a movie doesn't mean it can't happen. So just because you saw how the, you know a homicidal robot in 2001: A Space Odyssey, just because you saw that already doesn't mean it can't really happen. Right. So although it remains a possibility that robots will become our overlords, James seems to feel that an AI boogeyman may be more covert than obvious. We may have already fallen victim to this. And more so, maybe the villains aren't AI in themselves, but the people who manipulate the technology. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm more encouraged that we have more people thinking about the issue. I'm, I'm discouraged because the, uh, the companies who are really in charge of the issue, the people that are developing AI, um, and I'm talking about Amazon, Baidu, uh, Google, are behaving so foolishly and recklessly that, um, that I, 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 I'm discouraged because I think that when important decisions need to be made, they'll be uh, doing something nefarious. And, and not, and I, for example, you know, Facebook's uh, took all our data and sold it to a foreign entity to influence an election in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, Apple has been involved in, uh, they work with a company called Foxconn, which is the largest in, uh, industrial manufacturer. And they've been involved, they've been, uh, again and again, Apple has turned its back against um, horrible, horrible working conditions for people in China. Where there are, there have been uh, there are ten suicides in the last year. There are people that are living in completely unsanitary conditions, um, and this is just this is just par for the course for for companies like Apple and Google. So what I what, I, what I'm encouraged by the by organizations like the Future of Life Institute and the Machine Intelligence Research Institute that are that are doing things to try to uh, to try to address the ethical development of AI. But I, I, more and more, I'm concerned that the corporations uh, developing AI, we can't rely on them to monitor themselves. Google, for example, has 400 lawyers, 400 lawyers, because they've been because they've been sued in more than 20 countries for infringements involving privacy, unfair labor practices, copyright, patent violations, you name it. Facebook was uh, fined in Australia for targeting at-risk children. I believe, check this out: if kids, if kids used the words lonely, worthless, sad in online messages, a Facebook algorithm targeted them for ad, ad bombardment because sad, because sad children are more prone to impulse purchases. Wow. Yeah, and Apple was recently caught slowing down the performance of older iPhones, including the one I have, so that the users would buy newer phones. Yeah, that, so, we figured that yeah. out, me and my wife. We're like, why is all this stuff stop working? Yeah. Well, this, this, this you know, the, the, I mean, the good news is Maybe we'll survive the intelligence explosion, and maybe we'll survive superintelligence. The bad news is the companies that are going to have to guide us through this are about the most irresponsible that we could possibly imagine. So, uh, and they're, and their 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 list of just just silly nefarious deeds just, just keeps keeps adding up, despite the fact that they're making su- such extraordinary amounts of money. But you know, and then then there's the, the question: we don't. There's this issue of you know. Um, Facebook patented patented an algorithm that told lenders uh, that, that gave gave inside information to lenders 
so they wouldn't give mortgages to to uh, people of certain races and and women. Wow. Um, because there's yeah there's real uh, data bias that embeds racial and gender prejudice into decisions about um, into decisions about mortgages into decisions about uh, about who gets into college. Um, last year, Amazon came under fire for algorithms that limited its delivery service in many minority neighborhoods. Hmm. Uh, in the UK and the US, employment agencies have been um, penalized for computer-generated decisions that discriminate against race and gender. Um, so you know, there's a bank in New Jersey that was fined $33 million for using zip code data to deny mortgages to minority individuals. And this was based on this was based on algorithms. They didn't just they didn't do redlining, which is sort of the old way mm-hmm. to, to to discriminate against certain neighborhoods. You redline around certain zip codes, but this these zip codes were part of this overall algorithm that would that would grant or deny mortgages. They 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 basically you know the the reason some of these are biased is because they were hand coded in the nineteen nineties these these data sets mm-hmm. that were, were these 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 algorithms are fed data. The data was hand-coded in the 90s and early 2000s, and it contained the biases of the people that, that created it. Okay. So uh, they're not acting autonomously. They're, just un- they're, they're unconscious. They're, they're just an algorithm. You plug in someone's information, and they, they get, they get uh, a mortgage or they don't get a mortgage. But if you look under the hood, there's, there's long-term racial and, and, and gender bias you know, in, the, in, the, in the formula. So all this seems maddening, and it should make you angry to know that corporations are basically eavesdropping on your daily activities. But we go online voluntarily. Aren't we knowingly handing over this information? You know, right, right, Zuckerberg said it best when he said, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's, that was his response. People said, uh, somebody said to him, but, but, but Mark Zuckerberg, uh, people have an assumption of, of privacy. And he said, oh, they signed on to, they signed on to Facebook, so fuck them. Yeah. So every time you, you, you know, there's a, there's a saying in AI or saying in, in computers that if the product is free, then, then you're the product. So if you're getting a free service, you're not really getting a free service. You're giving all the, it, all the data it can possibly want. What it really is, is a data-hungry animal that you've given permission to. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, we, we, we are to blame for for signing over our data mm-hmm. this this way. But we need a smarter way to for, for us to frame it, because we've done this. It's it's just a slippery slope, and we can't expect everybody to be a uh, contract lawyer. Um, you know, every time you 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 sign, you agree to a, a, a agreement. Services agreement. You know, every time you install some new software, you click on this service agreement. I was just bombarded with a lot of privacy updates. Yeah, but I'm sure. I, yeah, yeah and, yeah, and so, but what they what they all mean is that you don't have any privacy, right? Basically, and so we have to decide. You know, but but more and more, you have to uh, use these tools to live in this economy. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, is it really a, a choice? Is it is it made under free and fair conditions? I'd argue, no, it's not really. They've got a, they've got a lock on um, the tools that we need. They've made uh, two or three monopolies uh, 
to, to, to compel us to use these tools, and then they just they just take our data. They're not really contracting for it. It's all happening so fast that I like to think that maybe um, organizations will and and people get more educated about exactly what they're giving up. For example, they just showed that um, was it Amazon Echo was listening far more than that. So a case came up where Amazon Echo. Uh, listen to a conversation and then mail the conversation to another, <laughs> yeah. a, a person on the contact list. It was an accident, uh-huh. but but it 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 uh, highlighted something Amazon didn't want highlighted, and that was that the Echo was listening a, a lot more than than anyone thought it was. I've had two instances where I heard Siri make her blinking noise, and I looked down and there was three pages of the conversation I just had. That's happened to me twice. And I, I think, I don't know, I actually, I don't know how the bug happened, but it's happened to me twice. And I looked at it, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. My, my sense is it's probably not as much of a bug as we think. You know, the, the, the street view cars, Google street view cars used to suck up, as they drove down the street, they sucked up um, local area network data, including passwords and, and data. Wow, really? Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, you should look that up. They, and they were sued in, in several countries in Europe, and they, and they promised to stop doing it. And then they kept doing it, and then they promised again, and then they kept doing it, and then they got sued in like four more countries, and then they stopped. They're probably doing it again. But the, the, point, the point of that is um, these, these machines are, 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 are you know, what, you, what we perceive to be accidents are probably not really accidents. And these machines are, are much more data hungry than we know. Data, there's another, another uh, phrase just for your audience. It's data is the new oil. Data really makes these, uh, these systems go. And these systems are going to be, are, they are extremely profitable. And they're going to be uh, way more profitable in the future. So your thoughts are completely private until you put your thoughts on the internet. And sometimes we do this without realizing through search queries, chat conversations, or any other online activity. Just be aware that all this activity has been monitored and logged. Let that sink in. Oh, I've got everything you've ever done on on the internet. I, I if you look on my Twitter feed, mm-hmm. um, I I tweeted tweeted about this weeks ago. But there's a there's a there's a somebody some smart journalist wrote an article about all the different uh, things that Google knows about you and Facebook, mm-hmm. and it's it was astounding. It was basically all the places you've been, all the people you've talked to, all the conversations you've had, everyone you've called. Wow. Um, anything, any place you've searched on the web. Um, and not only that, it's got all your connections, and I kind of knew that. It's got everybody you've ever texted or emailed to. It's got a, and it kind of cross indexes you with them. And uh, it's just, it was astounding. I, I, I can't, I, I don't, I don't know that. Uh, if you look on my Twitter, Twitter feed, just you know, James Barrett on Twitter, mm-hmm. and backtrack a couple of months, there's this really eye-opening article about um, exactly how much Google knows and Facebook is even even more sort of diabolical. They gather, even if you're not a member of Facebook, they gather information about you. Hmm. Um, and oh, I'm yeah. not sure, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure what the purpose of that is, but. Well, it would make sense if you're pr- posting pictures of your child. It's gonna see the face, it's gonna get to know the face as it grows and put a name with it. And, and yeah, it'll, yeah. it'll see this child doing whatever you're doing with this kid, what he's playing with, what he's, I mean, yeah, it, it makes sense that 
that it'll be uh, mining that information. Well, the trouble with all this, all this mining, all this unrestricted mining, like having, this is why I wouldn't have an Amazon Echo in my home or, uh, or whatever the other Google version is, Google Home, uh, is because you'll be, you'll be talking with your wife someday about your, your, your hernia operation, how you need another operation. And then, you know, the conversation will go to, uh, well, you know, we, we're dangerously close to bankruptcy, honey. And then you'll find, then you'll find, you know, you clear everything up, your health gets better, and you find that you're still rejected for insurance, or you're you're turned down for for a loan, because this data is is going somewhere. It's it's, it's being gathered, it's being collated, it's being assigned to you, and then it's being sold to someone. Just the way that Facebook sold, uh, was it sixty million uh, Facebook um, clients to Cambridge Analytica? That's terrifying. Yeah, well, it's been done. It just happened right in front of our eyes. This data was sent, sent to Cambridge Analytica, and that was used to influence an election. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not anymore. It's not, as, a, as we were just discussing, it's not that we're, that, that in my mind, that AI is being developed too quickly and, with, and making too many great strides and with too little safeguards. It's that the people that are uh, going to be responsible for it when it becomes when it reaches critical mass, when it actually becomes um, an existential risk, they're not trustworthy. They haven't, they've prov proven themselves again and again to not be trustworthy. So there's a lot of talk about the danger of anthropomorphizing AI. This means to take something inanimate like technology and put human emotions or human motives to it. Look no further than when folks name their cars or their phones. It has been said time and time again that this is a very dangerous practice when it comes to artificial intelligence. I think I'll notice if Part of an interview with um, Elias Yudkowsky, where he said anthropomorphizing is the most dangerous thing we can do right. in, in conversations with AI. And that's, that's simply, um, you know, we love to impute motive to inanimate objects. We, we impute motive to inanimate objects. So uh, a volcano blows up and, well, it's not really inanimate, it's kind of animate. Yeah. But a, a volcano blows up, we, we call it, you know, the thunder god or the, you know, the god of, a, of the mountain. Um, weather patterns you know that the, the, a mountain gets a name we 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 give uh and we and, and we say things you know we 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 have gods that that uh that take revenge on us just just because for, you know for whatever reason willy-nilly when we're dealing with ai we can't think of it as as human we can't uh, be lulled into thinking that it's going to behave in a in a that, that that it might love us because we created it, or it might like us because we created it. I see. Okay. Uh, so we can't we can't Im impute those motives into uh, into a machine, and that's what that's the danger of anthropomorphizing. It's it's anticipating that the machines we create will be naturally sympathetic, mm -hmm. when in fact they're just machines, and there'll be no more. They'll they won't love you any more than your toaster, um, and so. When, when, when we get to machines of, of greater and greater intelligence, we'll be, we'll be lulled into thinking that, uh, 
that they're that they're friendly, especially while you know digital assistants. There's this whole science of making them friendly. Mm-hmm. The whole the whole digital assistant science is trying. You know, it's a it's a hugely growing uh, sector of AI that's really trying to, to convince us that AI is fuzzy and warm. And um, you know, it's 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 analyzing us to to see what gets through our defenses, and it's 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 going to be hugely successful. But it's a big mistake for us to think that these machines are anything like humans. I think it's it's so hardwired into us that I don't know if it'd be possible not to. Well, that's the that's you know, and then at some point when they're really smart and really interesting, then why not just accept the fact that they're interesting and smart? I mean. Yeah. Except the fact that, except for the the danger. Um, I mean, I there's a I heard there's a um, a device I heard about called Confidant. And it was basically a super smart digital assistant. And you know, you know how when you make you talk to your you talk to Siri and there's a lag because you ask it a question, that question is put in a in a packet of information. It goes to a transmission tower, then it goes to a processing center, then back to the tower, then back to your phone. Mm-hmm. So you can't really have a conversation with it. But in the future, in the not-too-distant future, we'll have AI-specific chips in the phones and we'll have, uh, we'll have better, uh, better storage of, of data in the phones. And there'll still be a background information retrieval going on with that processing center. But in the, in the foreground, your experience of it will be an actual conversation. And that will be very, very interesting and very compelling. Um, and maybe even a useful product if you think about all the all the uh, you know elderly people and people who are who are secluded. Yeah. Um, these 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 devices will learn about us. They'll they'll learn and and maybe not all of that is a bad thing. Is the demarcation line between humans and computers the whole idea of emotion and empathy? You know, can can a computer? I, I was had this little thought experiment that if if you gave me a uh, AI baby, you know, it, it, it had the skin like a baby and it looked like a baby, but it's not real. This baby is not real. It's, it's synthetically made. Could I drown it in the bathtub? And the answer is no. I, there's, I don't think I could actually do that, even though I know it's not real. I, you tell a computer to do that, it's ones and zeros, sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, that's, 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 that's exactly right. Uh, People name everything. People have names for their phones. They have names for their cars. Mm-hmm. Um, we fall into that trap. We're, we have this mammalian inheritance of empathy. Uh, the machines won't have. They'll have. They'll have. The only, you know, the only, the only empathy they'll have will be programmed into it, and they won't. You know, I'm not sure if that will, that's really empathy. Yeah. Does it Does it matter if so? Say a computer can successfully emulate empathy emotion and it can trigger that response in us does it matter that it's not real i mean as far as we're concerned it is and should it be taken at that value at some point you know i'd I'd be willing to put down my defenses and say if we've reached the point where we've got human-like machines and they have they seem to have the whole, whole spectrum of empathy um, then that's that's then I'd be willing to put down my gun and say uh, maybe we should give them a chance because we really need um, we need more assistance we need uh, help for the elderly we need uh, it'd be great to have uh, you know them do a lot of a lot of crummy jobs um, but it's and it's this is why this is why uh, the Turing test is so important you know Turing called it the imitation game 
and the, and and, and to, for your listeners, the, the, the Turing test is a test of intelligence where a human judge listens to two uh, things interact on a teletype and they're talking back and forth and the judge is asking questions. If the judge can't tell the difference between the two, between which thing is human and which is uh, a machine, then the machine is judged to be intelligent. So what Turing was saying was that, and he came up with this in 1950, was that um, he, he was saying, you know, one, the, the nuances and vagaries and, and spe specificity of language are so interesting and so require so much uh, brain power that we should, that we should, that if you can master that along with a giant, um, you know, ontology of common sense knowledge and a giant database of learning, if you can accomplish all that, he's saying, then you should be called intelligent. But he's also saying, if you can fake it, if you can fake it to a human judge's satisfaction, why not call that intelligence too? Mm -hmm. And I think if, we'll, if we're in a Westworld-like environment, which is still, you know, super science fiction and, you know, two or three centuries away, um, if you were in that kind of environment, then why not give them the, why not give them, uh, the sort of the, the rights and, and, and treatment we give humans. And yet, with all our strides with understanding AI, implementing AI, and even learning ethics through trial and error, AI is still the sci-fi boogeyman, which is evident in popular culture with the success of something like, say, Westworld. I sat on a panel with uh, Jonathan Nolan, and he, he knows you know the, you have to do your homework to, to to get that good about AI. What I find unrealistic about that, and also the movie Ex Machina, is that it would be very unusual, or it's 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 sort of scientifically implausible, for some corporation or some person to not just achieve human level intelligence, but also to achieve. That new, that kind of fine-tuned robot. So at the same, at the exact same time. So these, you've got this incredible brain in this machine, and you've got this body that can do virtually anything our bodies can do. It's not going to happen at the same time. I think robotics are lagging pretty far behind. The last topic we talk about is autonomous weapons and how they're completely unethical and unfortunately look like they're going to be the future of warfare. Well, that's a, it's a, it, that's a complicated question and, and I don't have a, a ready answer for that except this. I don't want to be part of. I don't want to pay tax dollars. I don't want to be part of a civilization that that uh, that that puts the kill puts the kill decision in the hands of robots. And the reason is the reason is as soon as you do that, you you take the blame away from humans. You take the volition away from humans, and you fr you free up some general someplace from having made this this terrible this decision. You know, for for Hiroshima uh, and Nagasaki, you know, we had no maintenance plan for that technology. And the sort of the sort of the will of the people 
or the will of the people through the president was expressed in this in using these weapons. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to argue whether it was a good or bad thing. Mm-hmm. But I think I think, and I think a bullet is, you know, a bullet is a is it's a human it's a human act to fire a bullet. Uh, I'm not I'm not ready ethically to uh, let humans off the hook by having robots do their killing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to to muddy the water and take away praise and blame for 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 acts of war. Okay, I, I see um, that. that. Yeah, I, I think it's I, th- I think and I think it's you know the 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 sentimental argument they're going to come at us with is this: they're going to say, "Would you rather send your sons to war, or would you rather send robots?" Well, of course, you know who wants to send their sons to war. Yeah, but you know, it's, it's tell a straw man. It's a straw man argument. It, well, it's also tell your son to get a different job if you don't, you know, if you don't want him to go to war, mm-hmm. and let him let him make up his own mind. Right. But what's going to happen? You can see this movie. You can see this movie playing out uh, uh, already in any kind of armed conflict we get we go, we go into, where overwhelming technology uh, is used against uh, poor people in poor armies in poor parts of the world. And so you won't see arm, armies of robots going against each other. You'll see armies of humans going against armies of robots. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want my tax dollars going there. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, sure. Pessimist or optimist? Optimistic view about <laughs> about AI? Because because uh, I still have this image. Your book did this to me. I have this image of nanobots <laughs> tearing my body apart <laughs> molecule by molecule. Yeah, uh, good. <laughs> that was I'd very rather effective. Stay with you. Very, I'd very, stay with you. very effective. Uh, I think. I think if I, you know, if I had my own doomsday clock, I, I would not. I would take it back a notch because I was just reading something about um, Gary Marcus. Wrote a really. He's a he's a psychologist, AI maker, um, who teaches at NYU. Just wrote something about how hard AI is, and he applied it to neural nets. And they, I think I'm not sure if it was in the New Yorker or not. And then I re- and then I realized that you know I mean I, I sort of knew this already but that neural neural nets and deep learning and deep adversarial learning which is really pretty phenomenal how 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 uh, AlphaGo Zero defeated uh, mm-hmm. the game of Go without ever seeing a game of Go um, while it's all pretty phenomenal it's a long way from having a unified cognitive architecture that can do all the things that we can do mm-hmm. so that just puts off the problem. But putting off the problem, what I mean by that is that puts off the problem of sharing the planet with something smarter than us. But putting off the problem buys us time. And then while we put the problem off, we get, we get more smart people like, uh, you know, the Future of Life Institute, Max Tegmark at, at, at MIT. You get more people like uh, Nick Bostrom. He was the name I was trying to remember earlier. He's been thinking about this oh, problem right. since, yeah. since 2000. That's right. You get, you get, you get, uh, you get, smart people with more time to figure out how to do this and also more opportunities for real regulation to come into place. So I'd say my, I'd say I'm slightly more optimistic than I was before. However, I'm still, uh, you know, I, I still am appalled by, by the hands that these technologies are in. I'm appalled by how irresponsible these corporations are. And I don't, you know, it's like, we don't need to fear the technology. We need to fear the, the, the people who are using it. That's it, folks. Thanks for checking out the Wait What If podcast. As always, go over to www.waitwhatif.com to find out more about the Wait What If podcast, look at bios, articles, and a whole catalog of past episodes. Thanks again. 
and we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you.